Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair, episode M. Uh, it's another entry into the history of Road Runner record series, and in this one, I'm having a conversation with Robert Beaton. Rob produced three Road Runner albums in the early '90s: uh, Heathens, Victims of Deception, Exhorters, The Law, and Defiances Beyond Recognition. But he's also had a very illustrious career in mastering. So, in this conversation, we go through his time with Road Runner, his time spending with the band, getting those records out the door. And then we spend a considerable amount of time talking about the mixing world and what it's like to master trailers and the loudness war. So if you're really into that kind of thing and you're not so fussed about the Roadrunner stuff, skip to about an hour in and um, you'll be blessed with all the uh, wisdom and goodness that Rob has to offer in the technical world. So I hope you do enjoy this one. And thanks again to Rob for giving me his time. So one, two, fuck shit up. Can you there hear me? we go. <laughs> I'm good, man. Nice to speak with you. Yeah, you too. You too. I'm just grinning like a child because um, I've been trying to. I've just been prepping some questions, uh, and I thought I'd, I'd I'd talk a bit about the loudness war. And I thought, you know what? I heard a lot about Death Magnetic, the Metallica album, when that came out. I'll, I'll see what that sounds like these days. And I saw some comparisons between as it was released in retail and then Guitar Hero Three when they remixed it. I was like fuck me, it's night and day. But we'll come yeah. to that. That's why I'm just like grinning like a child now because since <laughs> I'm, I'm, when I was a kid, when I got the album to now, I've, I've done a bit more engineering stuff. So I'm like, whoa, I never would have spotted it at the time. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was a big that was a big deal when that came out. I remember that. And, um, and the guy who mastered it, um, Ted Jensen, yep. who's a legend, he took, he took a lot of flack for, for that. Um, and really it wasn't him. You know, those tracks were delivered to him just baked like state. that. So, we'll come you know, to I, <laughs> we'll, what's we'll, that? We'll come to that. We'll come to that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Good morning. Anyway, I know it's morning where you are. How was everything over in um, in, in, in Cali? Uh, well, you know, uh, a lot going on, obviously, mm-hmm. here in the States and everywhere. Uh, it's good, though. I mean... Uh, you know, COVID hasn't really, hasn't really messed me up too much personally, which um, uh, I'm very grateful for that. I mean, uh, I've been, you know, nothing's changed for me. I mean, I continue to work exactly the way I've been working for the last 15 years, you know, mm. I've had a studio in my house and, <clears throat> and um, you know, really during that time, I, and what I do today, I, I really specialize in mixing music for primarily movie trailers Um, but it's what they call production library music. And so most of my clients are, uh, companies that create this music and composers who create it. And it seems we we're all working from home spaces. So, uh, pre COVID, uh, rarely did anybody ever come over and sit in on mixes. It was all, you know, I mean, I even have the, the capability of streaming audio and video so we could be in different locations and work as if we were in the same room, but nobody seems to really want to do that, you know, (laughs) which is, you know, it's fine. I mean, so I'll, you know, uh, when we get to that point where we're finalizing the mixes, you know, I'll, I'll address their notes. I'll send, uh, I'll either upload to Dropbox or I'll send them a, a new file and then I'll sit back and wait while they listen to it at their studio. Sometimes we're on uh, FaceTime audio so we can, you know, talk during the process, but, um, 
COVID hasn't really affected me. And, and on, on a personal level, you know, I have three kids who are all, they're, they're grown um, and off doing their own thing. Mm. Um, and uh, they've, they're still working too. So yeah. um, not, you know, none of them have been impacted, but I root, man, I feel I have got so many friends who, um, who work in the live touring industry, you know, as uh, techs or uh, I've got a buddy who's a big monitor engineer for folks like Enrique Iglesias. And this guy mm-hmm. has not worked since, you know, the beginning of the year. And, and, uh, and, you know, that's his livelihood. I mean, he's mm-hmm. missed, multiple tours this year so i really feel for those guys but um uh you know i hear vaccines close and uh you know we'll see i this is i it. don't know man i you know i my mom always told me as a kid you know one day at a time one day at a time and <laughs> god damn it if she she isn't right <laughs> yeah, that's it I- man I'm a I'm a live sound guy as well, but I've been work, I've, I've got another full time job, so I'm fortunate enough to call it a side gig. But there's been mm-hmm. obviously my network of people has been devastated. A lot yeah. of them like um, a lot a lot of like what you might regard as sort of industry veterans on like the underground metal scene, particularly who do the tours like with all those smaller bands who've been doing it for twenty years have just gone. Fuck it, I've got to get a, I've got to get a call center job. I've got to be telemarketing or something like that. Um, just to get some sort of security and yeah it's yeah it's, it's just shit but we'll get there i mean in terms of the pragmatism about it i know live nation have been saying that they've, they're developing a roadmap to getting shows back next summer i think that's just fucking they've got they've got jack shit until um until there's a regulatory space that can back it live nation are just trying to get their stakeholders happy which is totally reasonable but mm-hmm. it's don't I, i'm trying to my message is always be cautiously optimistic you know right. if the guy that's charging a 25 dollar admin fee for tickets tells you that that gigs are back next summer you know he's probably got an incentive to tell you that whereas the mm-hmm. rest of the world's trying to take it as we say a day at a time but yeah everything not just concerts but i mean you know sports i don't know uh in england football or soccer are they playing in front of uh crowds you know they, they started doing um cardboard cutouts so fans would send in their yeah. cardboard cutouts of themselves and then they're, they're broadcasting it still on television but um you just get like the fee for 2020 backgrounds effectively because it's it's, ju- right. it's just cardboard cutouts um but that should be interesting because this is the first year that amazon prime have taken over the premier league in terms of broadcasting it which is a massive deal a massive deal because um, it's usually Murdoch's empire that owns that space. And now it's going somewhere else and there's no money being generated because, you know, it, there's no, all the ticketed events, anything they'd make yeah. off the actual ticketed events or the season pass holders um, or ticket holders, it's not going to, it's not going to work. So, yeah, but I'm happy because I can watch Leeds United from where I'm sat. Right, right. We've got, I mean, we're in the midst of the, NFL football season right now and uh, yeah. some stadiums allow fans and some don't so you'll mm. see some games uh, out no no fans in indoor stadiums and uh, then it just depends on what state you're in um, and, e- and even when there are fans it's limited to like uh, I believe it's 20% of the stadium's capacity. Right, so they try okay. and spread everybody out so oh. and then of course college football's going on right now and um that 
I don't know what's going on with that. It's that's so crazy. I mean, there's some some conferences have already started their season. Some aren't playing at all. Some mm. started back in uh, October or late or September actually, and have are going to be able to put in almost a full season. So, I mean, it's it's just so so messed up, man. It's so surreal and and uh, and like I said, I mean, I just literally, I just what's going on tomorrow? What's yeah. going on tomorrow? Let's just get through that. Let's and then the it. next thing, my wife and I went on a, on a road trip about a month ago, uh, doing some camping and that's really all you can do, you know, at this point, if you want to mm. break from, from everything. So her sister lives up in, uh, Eastern Washington, which is, a about, uh, a 20 hour drive for us. And so we just, uh, we, you know, I rented a convertible Ford Mustang and filled it up with sleeping bags and tents and stuff. And, and we did that and it was awesome, you know? So, uh, so it, uh, that's probably going to be more of that on the agenda. I think. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my partner is now seven months pregnant, so that's off the cards for the time being. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, congratulations, man. That's Thank you. nice. Thank you. Your first or you've got, second. you got second. All right. Awesome. Yeah, the, the the first will probably wander in at some point yeah, no <laughs> and start shouting. But oh, it's, I'm getting some fluctuating light on my side. Is that bothering you? No, I'm fine. Uh, I'll leave it. You look and sound great, man. Awesome, awesome. Um, so this project. Thank you for the time, by the way. I know this is such a weird, oddball request to get. You <laughs> know, it's. I, I was kind of nice to get it. You know, those were. Uh, um, uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully the weed has not uh, completely obliterated all my brain cells and I'll be able to remember a lot of stuff. But but those are actually good times, man. Those is particularly the exhorter record was, um, you know, it was very memorable time for me and and uh, just have great memories about that and, and loved those guys. Absolutely yeah, loved yeah. them. I mean, they're just a as crazy as hell, but like a lot of fun, man. And, and a really great band. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start from the start then. So the, the project itself is just, instead of doing a band biography, a great amateur band biography, I thought I'll do Roadrunner. And then, because no one knows that story. It's all in the liner notes of greatest hits right. and you get Monty Connor doing the odd podcast, which is great, but no one really, there's no one really has like a, a linear narrative and neither do I, because I've just been doing like 20 hours of interviews with people who lived through it. Um, mm-hmm. But I just thought, let's just tell that story before that knowledge starts leaving us really, because um, Roadrunner as an entity, it's not a giant conglomerate at the time. It wasn't a giant conglomerate. It was an indie label and mm-hmm. yet it still managed to have the impact it did. And I'm trying to suss out, you know, music as an industry is not a natural vendor services rendered and consumed products in the same way that food or transport is so how the hell did they manage to get make such an impact on the industry was it an accident was it was it carefully designed it seems like a bit of both really so i thought let's try and tell that story really mm-hmm. um well yeah i mean I, I don't know a lot about road runner either or, or road racer like the distinction between the two i don't really know but um but but I know it, and I'll it'll get back to the joke I made to you earlier about uh, Cease Wessels and and King Diamond being one and the same. I mean, that's that I think sort of lends to the mystique of of uh, you know of the company and the label. Yeah, and case of, of um, 
I think he's st- he's still around. And um, he, is that how you pronounce his name? K- it's, is it's, it Case? It's still up to, for contention. Um, there's okay. A, I, I call it a sister podcast called the Meep Meep Podcast, Roadrunner Meep Meep. And he, um, the, the guy on that, Ryan Rainbow, really cool dude. He's listening to all the albums from 1994 um, and talking about them with people or friends or whatever. Uh, and I haven't got to the episode yet, but apparently the Dresden Dolls have pretty reliable anecdotes uh, pertaining to it being Sace. Okay. And I've had, I was speaking to Metal Mike the other day, Metal Mike of Ardshock Magazine. He referred to him as Sace. Everyone else calls him Case. So I don't okay. know. I don't know yet. I think we're all right calling him whatever, <laughs> whatever, because right. that's what people have been doing for 40 years. So Right, exactly. And and if anybody has, has seen the two of those guys in a room together, maybe you can track them down and get some confirmation. Yeah, man. But for the meantime, <laughs> you can't confirm it. Case is right. Case. It, who knows Hmm. so let's talk about your experience with roadrunner that in in a in a nutshell there were three albums which you produced um uh in chronological order i believe it was heathen victim of deception ex heart of the law and then beyond recognition by defiance but prior to that you hadn't done a lot of production work you'd done a lot more technical work i believe so you were active in the industry were you attached to the studio or was it just you freelancing no, at, at, well, at that time I was freelancing, but um, my backstory was I, I grew up in the Bay Area and, you know, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I ended up getting a job at the record plant in Sausalito, which um, at uh, at that time there were three record plant studios. They were all owned by the same company and they were in Los Angeles, New York and Sausalito. And so just as I was coming in there they were they were being sold so it was being renamed the plant studios Mm -hmm. same exact place just new owner new name and you know i was just just happened to be in the right place at the right time i had just graduated high school and some buddies of mine had a band and obviously i was very interested in this stuff i mean i think it at age 13 or 14 when i got my first record um i was just instantly drawn towards, um, wow, how, how are these made? Who are the guys that make these records? What's the process? And, uh, you know, from, from 13 or 14, I, this is what I wanted to do. You know, I, I, the dream was to make records, produce records, engineer. I was very into the technical side of it. I, mm. I was that kid who had the killer stereo system, you know, and was always tinkering around with it. Mm. And so my buddies ended up uh, over at the plant doing a demo. I tagged along and I uh, guess I made an impression. And, <laughs> you know, a couple months later I got a call asking if I'd like, like a job and of course and so I started there you know like most people do as like the janitor you know I'm the guy that comes in in the morning cleans the studio uh runs get does the lunch runs and stuff but it was awesome you know because I would in the mornings I would be in each studio by myself cleaning I could see everything they were doing see what kind of mics they were using where they were putting them how they were using them and then when lunch rolled around you know uh, the guys in the band and the producers love me because I'm getting their lunch you know and so you really get to know these guys and and a lot of them had a had an impression on me so I was there for about uh eight or nine years and then uh really got the itch to kind of do my own stuff. You know, I really wanted to produce bands and be involved more creatively. And so Mm. that's about where I was at um, 
when this stuff came up. And I mean, the story of the heathen record is, is probably uh, pretty interesting, I think, because uh, um, originally a guy named Mark Senesak, um, mm-hmm. who has produced Exodus and number of uh, uh, other bands. Uh, but Mark and I actually grew up together in the same town and knew each other. Our, our mothers were good friends. And so Mark was uh, tapped to produce that heathen record. And he had already booked the studio time uh, in Sausalito at another uh, studio called Studio D. And then they were going to head up to Chico why I don't really know, because Chico is about four hours north of San Francisco. It's really in the middle of nowhere, and right. it's a college town. But for some reason, he had found a studio up there, and he thought it would be a good idea to bring the band up there, maybe pull them away from distractions and stuff. So he was uh, on another project and couldn't break away. So he called me up and he said, can you go to Studio D with these guys and just cut the drum track? See if you can get drums and bass. You'll be over there for a week. I'll be done with my thing and then I'll take it from there. Right. So that's what we did. And um, by the end of the week, uh, the guys, Lee in particular, Lee Altus, um, they really liked me. And so they called Monty and said, what year is this, wanted, by the way? Sorry. This is 90, 91, I'm going to say. 91. Okay. And Monty flipped out. I mean, he's like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Rob who? And, you know, he had hired Mark to produce this record. And, you know, Lee is uh, Lee's a real smart guy. And, and uh, he knows how to kind of get what he wants and Mm -hmm. he just told monty said don't worry about it this is trust me this is going to be good it's going to work out good and um next thing i know i'm on my way up to chico um to do this record with them and i'm co-producing this record with these guys so that's how that came about and Mm -hmm. uh and in the end monty loved it he he just loved how it sounded um and uh so the next record was exhorter and they were supposed to work with somebody else as well. But Monty had kind of a change of heart. So he sent them the heathen record to check out and those guys really loved it too. And Mm. so they, uh, they decided to bail on the other guy and ask me if I'd go to new Orleans and make that record. So, so that's, I just, I mean, literally, I just kind of like backed into this whole thing, to be honest with you. Prior to that, I was, I was, you know, producing uh, mostly demos and, and mostly pop bands and rock bands. Um, It was the heathen record that kind of pulled me into that whole thrash scene. I was going to ask if you were a metal guy before, because especially on that heathen album it's like at the, the precipice of like the the prog thrash or the thrash prog sort of wave especially the, when Rodan was heralding those kind of albums like with realm and um with early defiance and it comes through in the mix because it's so guitar oriented but at the mm-hmm. same time there's such a reliance on everything else it, it, you can't focus on just one thing but it still sounds clean as as hell so i'm just wondering if you had like was it just a sonic understanding of metal or were you a metalhead prior to that engagement? I don't know that I would say I was a metalhead. I mean, I, uh, growing up, like, uh, I loved Rush, absolutely loved Rush, but my favorite band. And to this day, they're still my favorite band. They're my grateful dead is the blue Mm -hmm. is blue oyster cult. 
Um, the first record I ever got was on your feet or on your knees. And I was just instantly attracted to that. And then I discovered agents of fortune and it was all over. And so, I mean, I, I loved them, but I, but bands like Iron Maiden, um, UFO, um, uh, Judas Priest, love Judas Priest. Um, and, uh, uh, Metallica as well. Master of puppets. I mean, I was listening to a lot of that stuff. Um, so I, I think, those things um, served me well uh, on the heathen record because I think, mm. you know, you hear a lot of those influences in their writing. Exhorter was a little bit different. Um, those guys were much heavier um, and they were, you know, they were kind of, uh, their scene was, was I think something that was a little unfamiliar to me. Um, but I think that worked more out well too. Hardcore grounded. Yeah, yes, it's a bit exactly. more hardcore ground, grounded in that, but it there still had a there was a thrash aesthetic, but there was also like some there was some cowboys from hell comparisons as well, right? In Kyle's voice, which I thought was a bit unfair because I don't think it sounds anything. His voice sounds somewhat similar as a rasp to it, but an Exorder Pantera comparison isn't justified in any circle. I don't think they're too different. Yeah, I mean, you know, that you can go back to like their association with Phil Anselmo and even their locale, you know, being in in New Orleans. Um but yeah, they were mm. they were such a unique band. Um and uh and it was definitely heavier than anything I had ever really listened to or even been into. But there yeah. were elements that I could really um, relate to. I mean, the groove, you know, they're uh, all, always all about like a real, just a great groove. And they had that. Um, and, mm. and I thought Kyle as a vocalist, just absolutely mind blowing. And, and working with him was um, almost like working with a method actor, you know, he just really, uh, you know, you just stay out of his way. I mean, when he gets into his headspace <laughs> and prepares himself to perform, everybody just gets out of his way. And my job was just simply just capture it, just capture what he's doing. You don't tell him yeah. what to do. You just try and facilitate him, you know, and, and then he comes out of it. I mean, it's, it, it was really a, mm. a strange and interesting thing for me to witness. Cause I had never really seen that in, in the studio, you know, there's typically there's, you know, it's more of a relaxed environment and stuff, but he just really gets into whatever you want to call it, his character or just the mindset that he needs to be in to perform. And it's almost as if he becomes another person. And then he comes back into the control yeah. room to listen and you start to see, you know, Hey, he's back. Kyle's back, you know, <laughs> Kyle said that, um, cause I spoke to him the other week. He said going into the studio for the law, um, he they obviously went in to try and capture the live the live sort of feeling. I guess that's the hard cost of speaking. Uh, but he said the thing that he felt let down on on the law was their lack of experience because they got there. There's a ten thousand dollar budget, which I don't know what that translates to in time, especially in 1991, 92. Um, but he said we got there and the two guitarists were trying to still figure out the tone and try and figure out the gear they were going to use. And that kind of ate into the time. And then the knock-on effect was Kyle, I think, only had like one day to record all of his vocals. Yeah, that, I do does, recall. Does that sort of reflect on... Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, the budgets for all of these records were small, in my opinion. They were tight. Um, yes. In fact, I mean, uh, uh, 
a little side story here about that was um, when I uh, talking with the band about logistically how we're going to do this and whatnot, I agreed to uh, instead of them getting me a hotel um, for, I mean, I think I was there for three weeks instead of me getting a hotel, they said, Hey, we've got an extra room here at our house. You can just crash here. I was happy to do it. Then I got a phone call from Monty and his, his exact words were pretty much, are you fucking crazy? You're going to stay with these guys? You're going to, like, live with them? And I didn't think anything of it. I thought, oh, they seem like good guys. I mean, this, this what's the problem? Plus, this is going to give us extra studio time. I mean, probably would have given us, you know, at least an extra three or four, maybe even five days in the studio. And mm-hmm. my mindset was that was the most important thing. I mean, with all of these Mm. records, these records are, um, in my opinion, the probably the most challenging records to make just stylistically. I mean, they're really, really challenging. I mean, everything wants to be the loudest thing in the mix and it's, it's a real, um, you got to work hard to make everything work, you know, make everything heard. And, and then you still have to, um, you know, make it all about the song, all about the performance, all about the, you know, the individual players. But um, so, so they take time, you know, it it just takes time. So I always tried to, man, stretch that as far as I possibly could, because I knew that the more time you could put into it, the better you were, you were going to be able to make it. Mm. Um, So, you know, that was one of the things that we did there. But, yeah, I do recall after we got kind of the drums going, um, you know, there, yeah, we we did spend a lot of time trying to get the guitars together. And we also mixed that record twice. Um, Mm. Originally, we recorded it in New Orleans at a, um, let me turn that off. Hang on a second. It's all right. If you get an urgent uh, call, by, yeah. by all means, take it. We're, we're very laid Noth- back here at Temple of Blair. Nothing is urgent here at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we we recorded it at a place called South Lake, which was a great studio, uh, awesome Neve console and a Studer 24-track machine. And then we mixed it back at uh, the place in the Bay Area that um, I typically worked out of, and that was a place called Bayview Studios, which was just on the uh, other side of the Bay from San Francisco. And um, and so uh, the first go-round, uh, I talked Monty into dropping a little more cash so the uh, the whole band could come out for the mix. And, um, so they were all there. They stayed at my house, um, as well. And, uh, and we mixed the record with Vinny. I really kind of driving, driving the bus. Um, and, uh, and we handed it in and I don't think those guys were really happy with it. And Monty wasn't happy with it. And I think for Vinny, um, I think he would even agree that, um, it just felt kind of overwhelming for him. Uh, um, you know, that responsibility. I mean, it was, it's not like he was sitting there mixing it himself. I mean, I was sitting there mixing it, but he was really kind of spearheading the direction. And so after some conversation, we decided that Jay would come out and um, just Jay and I would remix the record. And that's the one that uh, that's out that came out. Right. Right. It's interesting the sort of chronology of Exoda because they had, they were formed in 85. They, had the Slaughter in the Vatican demo and then Slaughter in the Vatican with Scott Burns. 
And that was like over maybe a five, that's a five year period where they've got these songs. And then they've only got about 18 months and they've got a new album. So the songs themselves are stylistically different. There's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more crunch to it. There's a lot more groove to it, as we say, but it's not quite as thrashy. And there's even some slap bass in there and things like that. Did you get an impression that that was a sort of a logical and natural progression for that band? Or did you think, okay, there's, is, is, was there an incentive they were responding to? Was it just them jamming stuff out? Where did you think that, that change of pace sort of came from? Well, they, it was definitely uh, a conscious decision. They told me that before right. I even signed on to do it. So they sent me, because I didn't know anything about them, and this was, you know, ni- 1990 or 91. So, I mean, uh, you, you know, you couldn't just email me a, a an MP3. Mm. So they sent me Slaughter in the Vatican, um, and uh, they didn't really tell me much about uh, you know, about their sound and their style. They just said, let's, we'll send you this record. They sent it to me. And I remember opening it up and looking at that cover and going, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, and then I listened to it and I was, and I really, I had reservations and it's not like I'm some church going teetotaler, you know, but I, this was like, wow, man. I mean, they're <laughs> like dragging the the Pope into a room and they're going to lynch the guy, you know? And so I started thinking, uh, you know, do I want to do this? Am I up for this? You know? And so I told Jay who um, Jay and I really became kind of good friends on, on this project. And I really related to one another. He was the guy that really also had a, uh, an interest in everything technical, you know, mm. he, he used to, I used to let him run the tape machine and punch in and out, you know, on stuff. Yeah. And um, so he called me up and, and, and I told him, you know, I, I'm like, yeah, man, you know, I don't know. And this and that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, let me have Kyle give you a call. And so Kyle called and he said, Hey, we're going for something completely different this time. Uh That was like something that we had to get out of our system. You you know, in new Orleans, um, you know, religion is really big and, and, Mm. uh, um, you know, it's the only uh, state in the union where they divide up their, their, their areas, we have counties in every other state, but in Louisiana, they're parishes, you know, and it's all built around religion. And so this was, you know, them, uh, you know, their, their backlash and resistance to religion. And so this time they were going to take on, you know, big, big business and Mm -hmm. corporate and all that stuff. So it was a, it was definitely a conscious thing. They, they wanted to tighten up their, their sound, their performances. They wanted to um, continue to like push in sort of a very intricate and progressive direction, but, but they wanted it to be tight and clean. And, um, and then of course, as far as um, the lyrics, uh, you know, it was going to, you know, there weren't going to be any religious connotations anymore. It was Mm. going to be about this. And so then at that point I was like, yeah, man, let's totally do it. I'm, I'm way into it. And so, um, you know, it's funny. I've never really had a conversation with them, uh, you know, about how the record is held up. I haven't talked to any of those guys actually in a long time. Um, but I, I, I think that they were pretty happy with what we did, you know, in the yeah, end. Yeah. Um, I can confirm Kyle did say he was happy with, um, he, he knows that Roadrunner weren't happy with the mix. He also knows it, it sometimes struggled to capture the live sound, but 
he was happy with the general what, what everything that happened in the studio. He was happy with your input. He was happy with everyone else's mixing input and everyone's performance. Um, have you heard the new album, Mind Chance? The, uh, the I did. I listened to a little bit, and my mouth hit the floor, man. I mean, mm. <laughs> sonically, I was just stunned. I mean, I don't know who they're working with these days, but whoever that guy is, man, look it up, very, man. very impressive. I think he's some guy from Sweden or or Norway, some, somewhere around there. Vinny LaBella, um, Dwayne Simono. Or Simoneo. I haven't heard of these two chaps. Well, we Vinny, um, the the other guy, I think, oh, replaced sorry. Yeah, Jay. Jay. Yeah. Uh, Jay. Replaced Jay Saravalo, and I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure what Jay's up to or, or where he's at. He, the last, uh, last time, my wife and I were in New Orleans, maybe in 90, uh, I, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years after I'd done the record. And, and uh, we got together with the drummer, Chris Nail, and his wife. Mm. Um, and that's really, other than, you know, just some messaging back and forth with Vinny, I, ha- I haven't really uh, kept in touch with those guys too much. But um, a-, a friend of mine uh, told me that they, put, they had a new album out, so I went and checked it out. And um, it just, just powerful as hell, man. The guitars are just massive sounding. Yeah. Um, very well done and uh and just loved the mixing and loved the way it sounded yeah sorry yeah Vinny was exec producing um and he's no yeah there i think there's a guy if it does it list anyone as the mixer because i think i recall seeing it was uh uh, a guy and i believe he might be in sweden who mixed and mastered it yeah jens borden uh swedish record producer mixer and recording engineer um accolades out the wazoo it'll be too many yeah, to list yeah <clears throat> well you know uh these guys today um uh with pro tools and all the technology that's available i mean honestly um i've i've been using pro tools now since probably about 96 or 97 mm. so i don't know what that 20 25 years i've been using pro tools and you know on many many days uh, uh, the, uh, the thought will pop into my head, man, if I had had this stuff back when I was making those records, I mean, you're, it's like a game changer, you know, back then when we were cutting drum tracks, I mean, we, every, we were cutting everything to analog tape and I was mm. editing these drum performances together. Um, you know, having, whether it was Chris from Exhorter or, or Darren Minter from Heathen, yeah. um, you know, taking, taking the best parts of multiple performances and physically with a razor blade and tape, cutting these sections together. That's how we did it back then. Yeah. You know, yeah. and now it's a completely different situation, you know, recording to, uh, 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 you know, digitally in a, uh, whether it's pro tools or logic or whatnot, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, uh, boy, it would have come in real handy back then, but yeah. you know, that's how it was, man. And you, you know, these guys had to perform and, um, and it was painstaking work, you know, to get those records to really sound great and to, you know, translate the, the ideas that are in their heads into what, you know, you hear coming out of the speakers. Yeah. I think with those budgets that Roadrunner set as well, I think the expectation would have been you go in and you do it live and you get it right the first time. And it takes like, I guess, a painstaking amount of time to get that to that level. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, in my experience, and I, you know, I mean, I think if you talk to like an Andy Sneap or some of these other guys, they'll probably say the same thing. The process is always, man, you just first, just get the drum tracks, just get a, a awesome drum track that's mm. killer. And then we used to do all the guitars next. Um, and typically that would be in the case of Heathen, Lee did pretty much all of the rhythm guitar stuff. And uh, in um, Exhorter, Vinny did most of it, but I know yeah. Jay did a lot as well. And and then you'd figure out where the room is left for the bass. <laughs> you'd try and carve out, you know, a bass sound that, um, you know, really at best just complemented the guitars. And I mean, that's yeah. evident on the Heathen record. I mean, you could, but the bass is pretty much not even there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say on, on that, Josh Wilbur, uh, he's a producer who's done a couple of albums this year. He did Trivium's What the Dead Men Say, if you've heard of them, and um, Lamb of God's new album. Mm-hmm. He, if, I've, if I understand correctly, he does guitars first. He does them to click. And I think the idea behind that is when you get all the lads um, and the entire band in the studio, the last thing you want is them to be sat around for a week waiting for the drums. I think the idea is once you get the momentum going by getting as many people doing work as possible, Mm-hmm. then I think it, it, it's meant to pay dividends lay down the line. So they just do it to a click. And then right. maybe if, they need, if it needs tightening up, they can do it at the end because they've probably made time with everyone being on form. Yeah. Yeah. I think, but that's, well, I I believe, um, I believe the, uh, the Metallica stuff they did with Fleming Rasmussen was done the same way. Okay. Um, I, I believe, uh, I've heard this multiple times. Um, and I'm pretty sure that is the case that James would lay down all the rhythm guitar stuff first and that the drums, if, if not last, certainly later on in the process. Yeah. And I can see that too, you know, because, um, you know, Lars, Lars's performance are really about sort of precision. And, um, you know, back then they would have been recording to tape as well. So, Mm. you know, would have been able to punch in and, and just build a drum track on top of that. So that doesn't really surprise me. I mean, these, these records are, you know, different than a Rolling Stones record, you know, it's just stylistically, that's kind of what it calls for, you know, they're, they're technically challenging and, um, you know, they need to be tight and precise. And that kind of requires that brick by brick building mentality. Yeah. Yeah. So apart from rejecting the mix, did Rodan ever get involved uh, throughout the process? I know, I think Monty was sometimes rather hands-on. In my case, on all three records, he was incredibly hands-off. Um, in fact, with Exhorter, he was completely hands-off. I think those guys would have wanted to remix that record no matter what he said. I think even mm-hmm. if he'd said he liked it, they, they, they were pretty set on wanting to do it again. They felt like it could be, it could be better and it could be more of what they really wanted. Um, with Heathen, he was pretty hands-off as well, too. Um, I think he, he, uh, he really, really liked Lee and mm-hmm. trusted him and believed in him. Defiance was a little, a little different in that um, those guys, uh, you know, they didn't quite have the experience that the other two bands had. And I think their previous experiences with, I can't remember the guy that they had worked with on their previous records, but I, I don't think they came away from those experiences having learned a whole lot. And, you know, I don't know. I I, I think that was maybe a combination of him not 
the producer and maybe not pulling them into the experience and maybe them not picking up enough uh, through it. So I remember early on in rehearsals, you know, like trying to work out the songs with them, which is something I never really did with Exhorter. I w- the rehearsal time was, I was only interested in really getting to know them as people and, mm. and um, getting a sense of maybe the best way that I can help them and facilitate them and help direct them. And then also to kind of learn the songs, but with defiance is a little bit different. I was noticing problems that were going on conflicts that were happening between the two guitar players mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we're, we're going to be problems down the road. So I had to reset them up in the rehearsal studio so that they could actually hear one another and begin to solve those problems. And then we, we ran into the issue with Steve, um, frankly, just not being ready to record. I mean, there were no lyrics. He really wasn't a participant in the rehearsals. And uh, I brought it up with Monty and, you know, it's like, what are we going to do here? So at, at one point, we had started recording the record, not knowing what was going on with Steve. Mm. And um, so we ended up bringing in another guy. And at the time I had a small little 16 track studio in my house. So we were able to try out a couple different singers and actually demo them on top of some of the tracks we had. Oh, okay. And fortunately Steve got it together and he, he, uh, he, you know, he, he came back raring to go and ready to go because I mean, that guy's, he's a powerful singer. He's a really great singer. And, and mm. I'm really glad that, that um, you know, he came back around on this because I can tell you the guys that we were working with, it was just no comparison. Um, it just didn't sound good at all. And, I was gonna say, and it needed Steve, you know, it needed his powerful voice. I was going to ask actually, because I know one of those, I didn't know there was a number of singers. I knew Dave White from Heathen was one of those singers. Um, and I was wondering, was that by your recommendation? Did you set that up or just from your previous experience with him? But it could have been anything like... You know, I can't actually recall because um, they knew those guys as well. I mean, sure. it was a pretty tight circle uh, there. There was another guy named Matt Ulrichson. Um, and I honestly can't remember where he came from either. I don't recall m- me personally... Uh, uh, bringing anyone in to try out. But I just mm. remember, I think there were maybe three guys that we had tried and we had them all come over to my house and sing uh, on, on top of these, you know, rough tracks that we already had. And it was completely different. I mean, even Matt Ulrichson was stylistically similar to like Dave White. Yeah. Um, whereas Steve is, you know, maybe more of like a Chuck Billy, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, kind, kind of singer. So, um, you know, in the end, it, in the end, it really worked out. Um, but, uh, but that was one where, um, you know, I, I think it, it required Monty kind of stepping in and being involved and, mm. and trying to help us sort this out. But on the other records, nothing, you know, he really let these guys do their thing and gave them yeah, the yeah. freedom to, to, you know, make the records they wanted to make. To, just to fill any potential gaps in, in, what your understanding was with Defiance. So on their first album, the producer was um, Jeff Waters of Annihilator. Right, um, okay. That was generally a negative experience. War under, under the bridge, so I'm not saying anything contentious here. Um, I think what we'd kind of deduced was Jeff was brought on as a producer um, with the understanding that he'd be like the in-house roadrunner thrash metal factory guy. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think that was just... I don't think the band or Jeff maybe managed each other's expectations. So there was quite a lot of 
oh, we'll, we'll fucking sort it in post. And mm-hmm. it was like all the tiles were really tinny and there wasn't a lot of tone to them. Um, and the record went over budget and all that stuff, even though it's like a really well-revered record product of society, the first defines record. Um, I think that left a sour taste in Jeff's mouth and in um, the, the guy's mouth, really. So when they came to doing the second album, they worked with John Cooney Bertie. Yeah, John Cooney Bertie. Mm-hmm. I think that was a lot more straightforward. There wasn't a lot of contention there. But I think... Well, I, I think, you know, part, part of the problem might have been that the fact that Jeff was the leader of his own band, yeah. a songwriter and a guitar player. And that was one of the things that those guys told me right from the get-go when we talked about working together was they were like, we want to play our own instruments. And, you know, mm-hmm. Mike Kaufman didn't play at all on that first record. And I think even some of the guitar parts might've been played by Jeff. So that was right. like a promise that I made to them uh, was, you know, yeah, you guys will sure you're in the Bay, you're the bass player, dude, you should be <laughs> playing on your record, you know? So um, John Cunaberti on the other hand is uh, more of a technical guy. I mean, he's a, he's now focusing on mastering. He's still up in San Francisco, oh, cool. um, but uh, he had, John had a great career. He was Joe Satriani's producer yeah, uh, yeah. for many years and he's been around for a long time. He's a great mixer, a uh, great recording engineer. And so I think that was probably maybe a better experience for those guys because you know uh he came more from the technical side as opposed to like jeff who was like man i'm just gonna replay your parts you know Mm. this is how it should be you know stepping all over um you know their thing so um but i do i do remember them expressing to me that it was not a pleasant experience for them so i I I wanted to try and make it that yeah sure i mean i I find it i find it fascinating because and this is why I find Roadrunner so compelling because I don't think I don't think Jeff was was trying to be a producer. Maybe he was of his own initiative, but it came about the same time that Annihilator was signed to Roadrunner. So I think maybe Jeff was expressing himself to Monty, saying, "Can you get Can you get me behind a mixing desk?" And Monty, who has been the cheerleader for Annihilator at that point for a few years, was like, "Fuck yes, we want to. You know, if this is the direction the label wants to go, we want to be the thrash metal factory." Um, let's get this guy on board. And it just, I know, I know that Jeff was also slated to produce Beneath the Remains by Sepultura straight after Product of Society, but he dropped out at the last minute and Scott Burns came in. So what I ended up with was not a thrash metal factory, but a death metal factory. And it, right. that's the shit that just, that's why I'm so fascinated. It's so dull from like, cause I'm like, it's all about the bands and all about the music. And I'm there like, oh yeah, but they they were trying to strategize and, and, and create a kind right. of movement. And I find that just absolutely fascinating. Um, so with on, on that sort of like line of thinking, the timings for your engagements with Roadrunner seems to sort of line up. Was there ever a, a an expression from Roadrunner that they wanted you to be an in-house guy uh, and, and they wanted to continue um, making records with you? Uh, well, I don't know about in-house, but yes, definitely. Monty Lack wanted me phrase. to, yeah, Monty wanted wa- wanted me to work with um, uh, Deicide. Cool. And, uh, you know, I just, it was a too far of a stretch for me, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was um, stylistically, it was maybe just too far out of my comfort zone. The vocals... Um, the, just the speed of the tracks. Um, 
you know, and, and so I, I said, no, um, that, you know, if you got something that's more along the lines of heathen and the Metallica's black album had come out during yeah, that yeah. time period, yeah. which I really, really loved. And in my mind, that was the kind of record that I really wanted to make for them, you know, cause yeah. I'm, I'm really a big fan of, of melody, um, and, and, uh, I mean, for lack of a better term, you know, just sort of pop song structure, you know, mm -hmm. and that record really just sort of clicked, um, on all cylinders, you know, with that, it was heavy, it was melodic, it had groove, um, you know, it had harmony and, uh, and I know Monty loved it too. We had a mm -hmm. long phone conversation, just, just almost you know, just analyzing the record over the phone, you know, and talking about how great it was. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of beyond that, I just didn't feel like I would really have anything to offer a band like DSI, sure. you know? I mean, what they really needed was um, just somebody who could record them really, really well. Yeah. And, you know, I just, that just wasn't really something I was interested in at that time. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's again, it's just fascinating to me that, um, especially at the time, as you say, the Black Album came out, Nevermind came out that year. So the and the Roadrunner themselves started diversifying massively. They started doing some electronica stuff. They started buying mm -hmm. other labels and bringing stuff in house to really try and tread the waters. The they started, they started doing that before those albums came out. So it was really proactive of them. Um, so I, I, I always just like to think that there was a strategy. They weren't being reactive. They were being proactive. Um, mm -hmm. For what it's worth, man, that Beyond Recognition record is, it is bad. It's my favorite Defines record because it, it's, oh, nice. it does what other metal albums of the time didn't do, which was it actually embraced the, some of those 90s aesthetics. Like they embraced mm -hmm. some of the Alice in Chains in there. And I even heard a little bit of Faith No More. And, and mm -hmm. I think it really works. And the, it's still through line like prog thrash. And there's still yeah. the technical stuff there. And there's still like unnatural progressions. But it just seems to like, it gives the music of the day a big hug instead of pushing it away. Well, they were definitely... Uh, influenced by those things that were going on at the time, because, you know, we had a long, you know, with the issue with Steve and trying to find another singer, there was a long period of time where we were frequently getting together and discussing the songs and what it needed. And so we were listening to Alice in Chains and listening to Nirvana and some, so those things do bleed onto the record. Mm. The, the guy in that band that just blew my mind was the drummer, Matt Vanderen. Yeah. Um, he made, for me, he made that project like really, really special because that guy is just he's incredible man and and i think his groove is really what sort of propels those songs um and i you know still keep in touch with him today he's uh he's living in new york and he's actually yeah. the drummer in the broadway play wicked yeah so he's probably not working right now but i mean that that like just tells you what kind of a, a a drummer he is, how versatile he is that he's doing that. And I also produced uh, a band he was in a few years after that, that was really a straight up power pop band. Oh, cool. um, so really great drummer, great guy. Um, and then of, of course uh, I know Doug Harrington passed away mm -hmm. uh, from cancer. That was, that was a real drag too, but I really liked those guys. They, uh, uh, they were, uh, it, it was a hard record to make. I mean, it it really was. Um, there were probably some things I could have done 
differently maybe to make my life easier. Mm. But I, I really wanted to make sure that they enjoyed the experience, you know, and that meant, you know, you're playing on this record. Even if we've got to spend a bunch of time getting your parts dialed in, you're playing on this record. And just like trying to engage all the guys and have them all really be involved. And, uh, and it, you know, in the end, I, I think it worked out pretty good. I remember I did some demos with them afterwards. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the band. They had morphed into something different. Void Terra. No, that was an album they did. Uh, can't remember the name of the band, but anyway, they had put something together with Dave White um, that uh, I didn't go anywhere. Um, Skin Lab. Skin Lab was the band that Steve went on to form. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think they did pretty well. I think Skin Skin Lab. Uh, uh, has had a pretty nice career since then. Not really yeah. sure what the rest of the guys uh, in Defiance are doing, though. Uh, they've reformed. They had a fourth album in 2009, and they're currently um, sending emails to each other with 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 um, new bits for songs for a fifth record um, at the minute. I'm trying to find. I, I'm trying to find that band which you were referring to the because um, I know exactly yeah, what it's... you mean because they went because Mike was telling me. They went in a threshold. That's it. That's yeah. Because uh, they went back to um, Roadrunner, um, and Monty said, "We're not in the business of signing over 30s, which was a fairly reasonable response for the label <laughs> at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So that was your last uh, that's your last record for for Roadrunner. Did you have you revisited metal a lot? I know you kind of like you know, you've gone into uh, mastering a lot more than than mixing records. Yeah, let you know. Um, I I did uh, for a few years after that. You know, I, I was still doing um, some indie records or demos. I did um, I did that first uh, Torque record with yep. um, Phil uh, Phil Demel. Phil yep. and I used to live uh, very close to each other. We just lived a couple blocks away from one another. And he's Phil's an awesome guy. Really uh, great, great guy. Um, just a heart of gold, and. Um, he had asked me if I wanted to do this torque record with him. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that I had a blast doing that. That was a lot of fun. I think the drummer's name was Mark Hernandez, mm-hmm. who was just another monster drummer. And I remember going into the first rehearsal and he had taken like these metal discs and mounted them on his kick drum and his and the beater. Mm. So every time he hit the kick drum, it was like, it had the, the body and beef of a kick drum, but it had this metallic, like a gunshot. <laughs> and, um, and he's playing it. I'm just like, what I'm listening to this going, what's going on. And I come go around and I look and I see what's going on. And he looks up at me and he says, is this going to be a problem? And I'm <laughs> like, no, man. Not at all, dude. If this is, this is what you want to do, you know, it's, I've been try try and embrace that kind of stuff, you know, because, um, you know, this is him, you know, trying to be unique and, and be different. And, and, uh, so I haven't listened to that in a long time. I think Phil had it remastered and re-released recently, but, um, on mascot records. Yeah. Yeah. But that was, uh, that, that was a fun project to do, but is, but no, I mean, you know, um, let's see what happened after that. I ended up, uh, mid nineties, uh, 96 or so. I ended up, uh, deciding to take, uh, a job as a staff producer, an A&R guy for 
a label uh, in the Bay Area called 911 Records, and okay. this was a this was a company uh, that um, uh, had gotten a bunch of money from Intel, like fifteen million dollars, and they their job was to create a virtual bandwidth internet technology, um, and okay. uh, so they they were. That was their chore, but they had uh, decided to start this little record label and built an amazing studio in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and um, it didn't last long. These guys blew through that $15 million bucks in about 18 months, but they signed uh, about six or seven bands, um, a couple of them really, really good, and uh, so that's what I did for... Uh, for about two years Mm. and that would take us to like about 98 and then at that point they they went belly up and I found myself uh out of a job and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do do I want to go back to like freelancing in the Bay Area but I had met a guy working on one of the records for 911 we uh worked together on one of the the band's uh one of the labels bands and we really hit it off and he was living in LA at the time and was doing a lot of uh, television work, uh, scoring TV shows, uh, mm-hmm. themes, things like that. So he said, well, why don't you come down to LA? And, and I'm like, well, you know, I got three kids. I mean, he's like, all right, well, why don't you commute down here and see how you like it? You yeah. can stay at my place. He had a studio in Venice. And so that's what I did. And um, I would fly down there uh, during the week and we would work together doing all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, whether it was, um, you know, scoring, we were scoring a show called Unsolved Mysteries, oh, which was big here show. in the States. All right, so Fucking we did that it. for a while. <laughs> we did um, uh, the theme no song for a, a big uh, a big TV show here called The Practice, which uh, okay. was on the air for a while. So that that was a, a real abstract piece of music with a, a trumpet player named John Hassel. So uh, all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm finding myself exposed to a whole new world, you know, mm-hmm. uh, music for TV, music for film. We started doing music for trailers. Then we also did um, a record for that guy, Buckethead um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A song, uh, an album called monsters and robots. Pete and I uh, uh, produced half the record. And I think Les Claypool did the other half. Um, so that was a wonderful experience. So that, that and after two years of commuting, I decided, you know what, this is a much better fit for me. Um, although I hated LA, absolutely mm-hmm. hated living there. But I realized that I could go back to doing what I was doing in the Bay Area, um, or I could move down to LA where there's going to be more opportunity and, and, you know, more of a challenge. And so that was in 2000. And, and I've been down here ever since. Um, cool. Uh, so, you know, you, it's funny, you brought up the new, the new, um, exhorter record and I listened to it. And the first thing that pops into my head is I could never do that today. (laughs) I could never do that today. I mean, that thing sounds just absolutely insane. But I think part of it is that maybe I just, um, 
I'm not sure I got the legs to do make that kind of record today. You know, I've sort of, I think I've settled into something that's, that's just right for me. You know, I always, the mixing process was really always my favorite from the very beginning, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I was always thinking mix, even as we were recording the tracks, you know, in my head, I'm always thinking about how this is going to sound in the final mix. So it's always um, what I really wanted to do. And, um, you know, and to be able to do it here in my own house has just been an incredible luxury. So I stopped producing uh, stuff easily 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. I, and really engineering, I stopped engineering. I can't, the last thing I, last time I actually set up a microphone was probably seven or eight years ago. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm pretty content uh, doing, doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah, man, you, you mixed the trailer for my favorite Star Wars film. So, so <laughs> that's awesome. a great piece of music right there. That's yeah. my my buddy Tom Geyer. Actually, th- this is his company, Brand oh, X. Cool. See, so I get swag too. You know, it's one of the perks of of working with these companies. <laughs> you get Kathleen Kennedy knocking on the door saying, "Rob, we need you. We've got another yeah, exactly. Star Wars to do." But that's interesting. Yeah, you know, just on that, it's interesting because that was wet the the. I imagine it wasn't quite like another another trailer because there's mixing trailers and then there's one where the spec is, oh yeah, this is actually going to broadcast the live stream of Star Wars Celebration. So the first time anyone's going to hear it or see it is on YouTube. So it's not going to be in the cinema. It's going to be on every device under the sun. Well, for that particular one, the first, the, I found out about it in the theater. I was okay. in the theater and it came on and I'm like, damn, is that Galactic Soldiers? You know, and I'm, I'm, what the hell? And I got out of the theater and I called Tom. I said, I said, dude, did you know about this? They didn't find out until just a few days earlier. The trailer business is, is pretty different these days. Number one, um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm fortunately so busy because there's so much demand for, for music, for trailers, because it's not just a theatrical release. You've got, like you just said, internet, you've got television. Now you can start breaking it up into demographics. Like they'll Mm. produce one trailer specifically for ESPN and Fox sports, stuff like that. But then they'll produce a, a different type of trailer for the home and garden network, you know? And so, whereas maybe it used to be three or four trailers were produced for different outlets. Now it could be 20, you know? So, um, yeah. And that, that one was, uh, they showed it in the theater. So that typically they'll call that the number one trailer. Um, and then, you know, everything else, you know, will be for different, you know, different things. Um, but yeah, and, and and that was a case also where uh, the piece of music was produced before uh, the trailer. So mm. basically, they cut the trailer to that music as opposed to creating a custom piece of music for the trailer. That yeah. still goes on, um, especially for like big, big blockbuster uh, uh, movies where um, you know where where someone will be commissioned to create a a piece of music specifically for that trailer. But the majority of the time, um, the way it works is, uh, is the companies that I work for create the content and then they try and encourage the movie studios to use their music. So that'll be like relationships with editors and creative directors and And producers like that. Exactly. And, and so 
you know, once they decide, hey, we're going to use Galactic, you know, Cowboy or Galactic Soldier for Star Wars, then we'll deliver to them the final mix. But then we'll also give them the mix that's broken out into separate, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we call them stems. So that way they can contour the mix to their liking. Whatever the audience is going to be for the outlet. Yeah. Well, how are you also, doing for time, by the way? It, I've, I've taken an hour of your time. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, we're right, good. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, 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 I think the, this kind of uh, work suits me pretty well. I mean, I, I just yeah. I don't think I have uh, – I just don't think I have the energy or the focus um, to, like, you know, work with a band anymore. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it – that became pretty clear to me about 10 years ago, you know, yeah, I was like, yeah. man, you know, the, the hours are long, you know, and as much as I love hanging out with people, you know, it, it can be a challenge dealing with multiple personalities, you know, totally. um, you've got to try and make, you got to try and make four or five guys happy. And sometimes that's impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, you do your best and you try and, um, you know, you try and make that happen. But, um, that's all you, all you can really do. I mean, that for me with any of these projects, whether it be the three that we've been talking about or any other band, the always from the very beginning, for me, the most important thing was for me to kind of get to know the cast of characters and um, you know, who's the guy that I can really sort of rely on Um, you know, which guys are, and I don't want to, I say allies because I don't want to make it seem like it's confrontational Mm, because that's like the, the last place you want to be when you're making a record with people. Cause it, man, it can be a real drag when there's a lot of tension and hostility going on. So always wanted to make it fun and, and lighthearted as much as possible. But within that cast of characters, I mean, you're going to, there's going to be a guy who's the guy you know and he's the guy that has the vision he's the guy that can be your ally that Mm. you know will help you kind of push the project along in the right direction and then usually there's always going to be a guy or two that are problematic you know so you just kind of want to suss it out and uh and just manage people you know And, and i look at my role making those three records you know particularly um with Heathen and Exhorter, uh, you know, uh, people will ask, like, what does a producer do? And, and a producer can do a ton of different things, you know? Mm-hmm. In the case of those two records, I felt like my role as a producer was really more of a facilitator. Um, those guys knew what they wanted to do. Yeah. They knew exactly what they wanted to have happen, and they knew in their heads what what they wanted the final product to sound like. So I felt like it was my job to make that happen for them. Um, and uh, that involved finding the right uh, environment, yeah. um, which like in, you know, South Lake in new Orleans, I felt like was the perfect environment for them. Um, and then just creating an atmosphere um, that, allowed them to focus on, Mm. uh, on what they wanted to do. And then of course, capturing it. And, um, I mean, I think on a musical level with exhorter, certainly on a musical level, I had very little input on, Mm. on, uh, those, those tracks, those guys knew exactly what they wanted (laughs) to do. They were so well rehearsed and things were so tight and so thought through, um, 
uh, the, the heathen record, a little bit different. I mean, I think I kind of pushed those mm-hmm. guys a little bit more to experiment with a little more harmony yeah. um, because it was funny. I mean, they, they were all, you know, the Black Album came out after that, but they were already starting to do some of the elements that were in, you know, that are on the Black Album. And, yeah. and I definitely embraced that stuff because that was kind of where I came from, you know, yeah. hooks and melody and harmony and stuff. Um, but again, it was just back to, you know, Lee had a strong concept of, of what he wanted to do. And of course, and justice for all was the, was the target uh, yeah, for sure. that record. I mean, that was, you know, we want it to be better than that. We want mm-hmm. to do that, but we want it to be better than that. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. Around those times then, this should be a, an interesting segue. So where were the loudness wars at the time of these three records? They didn't exist at all. In fact, um, uh, a guy named Eddie Schreier uh, mastered these records, a great mastering engineer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, it, you know, at the we didn't master specifically for CD and specifically for vinyl. Mm. Um, it was one master. So uh, really, uh, we were mastering really for vinyl. And then it, you know, and uh, so 91, 92, I mean, it was, it was, uh, they were still pressing vinyl then. I don't know which sold more at that time, if there were more people buying the CD, but yeah. no, even if you listen to the, uh, to any of those CDs, um, there's so much headroom, uh, on those records. I mean, I, I was uh, going to say, they all sound good on Spotify now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I'll have to go back and listen to these records. That'll be like a real, I mean, I may cringe. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I, from when I'm reading on the loudness wars, cause this, I'm kind of great amateur. I'm a live sound engineer. I'm a great amateur at that, you know, so, but it's when I read back on it, 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 it seems to take place around about that time, maybe the mid eighties, but I have heard two sort of origin stories of it. So the loudness wars, the main sort of, the main sort of narrative appears to be anyone who has any sort of business, interest in music wants it to be louder than the next guy and that's kind of like where we get this overly compressed and no dynamic ranging and we get things like death magnetic where there's a lot of clipping and things like that and that's your main story james dolby on one on a podcast with chris hardwick i heard this about three or four years ago said another aspect of this was cocaine so the reason we got a load of, of uh, remasters in the early 2000s is because when people are mixing on cocaine you lose a lot of high end in your ears Forget about uh-huh. the speakers. Forget about the gear. You, so you're thinking you've got a great mix, but you've not got a great mix because you're on cocaine. So then once everyone serves up and grows up and has kids and they stop doing cocaine, then they listen back and go, there's something missing here. And there's, there's, it's a little bit um, out, of, out of kilter. Is there any merit to that? Because I've got a friend who is actually a mastering engineer who has said I'm full of shit. <laughs> well, Hey, look, first of all, mixing on Coke, that'll certainly uh, create some issues. You're typically (laughs) mixing, you're mixing way too loud. I mean, way too loud. You just can't hear what's going on at at that level. And yeah, of course, man, you're, you know, your ears are are just getting tweaked. And look, I mean, I've, I've been there too, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, the loudness wars, I think um, really, uh, came about uh, w- uh, well this is just my opinion but i think one of the contributors was the multi-disc 
CD players where you mm-hmm. could pop in like five different CDs oh, okay, into yeah. it was the, an early version of our, our playlists today would have been that. And then you get back to a and R guys and, um, and marketing people in the record companies who uh, want their track to get noticed. It Mm. used to be like when you would try and get your stuff played on the radio, what got it noticed was the fact that it was a great song, Mm. you know? Well, you know, now, you know, is it, is it louder than everybody else's? If it's louder than everybody else's, then it sort of moves to the top of the pile. Um, you know, when um, when uh, Guns N' Roses um, Chinese Democracy came out, which mm-hmm. I, that must be like 10 years ago now. Well, um, I, I remember Bob Ludwig mastered that record and he delivered to them two different masters, one where he cut it hot and competitive with what was going on you know the current climate and then he cut another master that was um, very dynamic and one that um, he felt represented the music better and he just sent it to them and wanted to get their reaction axel came back and said the dynamic one is awesome i love that one Mm. and i think bob made a little bit of a mistake who the fuck am i to say bob ludwig made a mistake (laughs) but he sort of announced to the world that the loudness wars are over that, you know, this Chinese democracy, this album that people have been waiting 15 years for, of course we know what happened. The record came out and it was like, nobody gave a shit, you know? So, you know, for, for Bob to say the, you know, he sort of put all his apples in that basket, you know, like just because guns, this big guns and roses record is a dynamic sounding record. The loudness wars are over. I mean, that's clearly that was not the case, you know, and I still hear it today, man. I listen to stuff and I'm just shaking my head like, you know, this is insane. You know, I I would say, you know, for every 10 new tracks that I listen to, there's maybe two or three that I feel like the overall loudness, the sheer loudness isn't impacting the music in Mm -hmm. a positive or negative way. The rest of them, most of the time it's the loudness is just so overwhelming that I can't get past that to really take in the piece of music. And that's my own personal philosophy of this because I have to deal with this too in the trailer world. Mm. It's very competitive. I mean, there are a lot of companies that are producing this trailer music and it's, and it's got to be big and bold and powerful and punchy. And so some of that has to do with how loud it is, what kind of impact it has. So I have to play that game all the time because I need to make sure that what I deliver to my clients is going to be able to compete with their competitors. So my philosophy is clear. It's, First and foremost, it's about the music. It's Mm. always about the music. That's got to be just as good as it can possibly be. And then I'll start to address the issue of, well, is it loud enough to compete with everybody else out there and try and get it to that level without degrading or tarnishing anything about the actual piece of music? And, And it's a challenge. You did Inception like throw a spanner in the works because that entire hook um, with the Inception trailer set the bar for years to come. The wah, yeah, yep. So then there's an expectation that your head's going to get blown off from the first note. Did that fuck you you up for a few years? 
Um, no, not, not really. Um, you know, that was, um, for, from a stylistic perspective that everybody started doing that. The the trailer world's kind of interesting, you know, it's, it's trends and, and fashion, you know, um, like a few years ago, it was all about these like really uh, small, intimate, like close mic short strings, you know, and almost like sort of Baroque type music. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> it, you know, it, it everybody, well, they call those Brahms, though that inception sound, it actually has a name, <laughs> Brahms, you know. Yeah. And so all of a sudden people started integrating those into their music, and which is a crazy thing to do because it's so identifiable. You know, yeah. there's no, you can't dress it up any other way. You know, you can try and put other things around it. But at the end of the day, people are always going to go, oh, inception, you know. I haven't said that though, does, does Rogue One apply to the Brom? Because it was higher, wasn't it? It was an alarm. It was the alien alarm from 79. But it wasn't brom it was more brim that i think that track uh would would fit into sort of the more traditional trailer-esque type piece of music Mm. where uh like like uh, it's got a long shelf life you know what i mean it sort of transcends any any trends like Mm. that's stylistically that's a piece of music that 10 years prior you'd probably hear in a trailer and you'll probably hear something very similar in another trailer this year, next year, the year after. Mm. Um, So there's a, there's still a strong market for for that. And it's technically we'd call it like an orchestral hybrid um, piece of music. It's, 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 um, it's built upon like an orchestra, but Mm. it's got um, uh, electronica, elements um uh, synth elements that are uh, uh weaved into it to create sort of this hybrid sound um so that's like one aspect of it i mean i do a lot of that kind of stuff but then i'm working on something now that's very very different i don't even really know how to how to classify it and it's and really for the composer and the company that's making it i'm not sure they know either mm. they just know that it's sort of different it's unique sounding um and it has sort of a cinematic quality to it mm. so let's do it and throw it against the wall and see let's if it sticks you know yeah the, I, the one thing i hope we get out of in terms of trailers is the slowed down piano um big theme so like the jurassic park theme and all the retro themes that they just sort of bring back for the uh for the reboots i hope we get rid of them at some point yeah but, uh, so how do we get out of the loudness wars then What's what's the catalyst that's going to make people think? Oh, let's let's prioritize dynamics over the boom. That, you know, that's a really really good question, man. Um, you know, you also have to sort of factor in how people uh, listen to their music today. You know, um, I mean, you're probably like me. I mean, I've got downstairs. I've got uh, a a great setup down there. You know, mm-hmm. I listen to mostly vinyl, mm-hmm. um, so. Uh, uh, that's how I absorb my music. But, you know, you've got kids today who are listening with earbuds. That's, yeah, you know, or off their laptop mm-hmm. or off of some little Bluetooth speaker, you know. So um, it makes the job kind of challenging because uh, you want, you know, you you want to uh, always, you know, think highest common denominator. But, you also have to keep in mind that most people are listening. Their listening environment is the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think you hear a lot of tracks that are kind of loud and you hear the upper mids and the high end hyped up because it translates a little bit better on those crappy Apple earbuds. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I do um, kind of make my household a Bose only household. That's my, that's my <laughs> contribution to, um, yeah. <laughs> to the mixing world. I've got, uh, so go on. Yeah, the your to kind of answer your question about how we get out of there, I'm going to have to say that I honestly don't know. You mm. know, um, I'm starting to hear a little bit of that in hip hop, believe it or not, mm-hmm. um, and and it kind of makes sense because there's just so much low end in hip hip hop music that you really need that headroom yeah. uh, uh, to create that available space for it. But when I listen to a lot of the new hip hop stuff that's coming out. I'm like, wow, this sounds good, you know, and you can really, really crank it up and it just doesn't seem to start blowing out. Um, you know, I, if you would, uh, if I'd known you were going to ask me about that, I probably could have <laughs> put together uh, my short list of pet peeve tracks, you know, cause I've got them, you know, I've got them where it's like, I can't even listen to this because it's just, it's just so ridiculous how loud it is, you know? <laughs> Hey man, email it over. I'd love to be able to set, do a, a comparison and so sort of go, this is, this well, is a token example. It's not death magnetic. Yeah. The de- death magnetica. I'm not sure that I've heard uh, a record since then that's been that loud or has, yeah. has been so problematic because it was that loud. I mean that nowadays you can listen to some tracks and, and it, you know, one person will say, I don't, doesn't bother me. And another person will say, oh, it bothers me. But with Death Magnetic, I think there was a resounding universal feeling that, man, this is just wrong. This is It's it's the snare. And that's the main thing. Your gateway into being disgusted by it is the snare. It's just, it sounds like, you know how like um, SoundCloud rappers have like the the trap snare, which is more like, it just sounds like that, but you know, it's not, you had snare problems on St. Anger. And now you, you're completely inverting the problem and making it a signal problem, not an actual instrument problem. It was so strange. So strange. Well, and my, my problem too, right from the get-go when I listened to that record was I believe the first track opens up with just James playing like a clean electric guitar thing. Mm. And I was like, it was so loud. I'm thinking, what's going to happen when the rest of the band comes in, you know? And then, of course, when the rest of the band comes in, it just, the track just, it's loud, but it just becomes small. And that's what happens when stuff is just overhyped and super compressed is it just starts to sound small. And and Mm. people don't realize that. And I have this conversation with a lot of composers from time to time because sometimes they'll send me their tracks and their tracks have that baked into them and i have to ask them to go back and take that stuff off and remake those stems for me because Mm. there's not much i can do with it you've you've effectively just completely crushed these things and sliced off all of the dynamics yeah and one one thing I, I will I will tell to people is a telltale sign that something is just way over compressed is if it's a dynamic track that has like maybe a more intimate intro or maybe the verses are smaller, listen to the beginning of it and then jump ahead to the end. And if if the beginning is louder than the end, mm. you you've got some problems. Yeah, you've got to and and it stems from guys mixing with 
a bunch of stuff on their stereo bus from the very beginning. Mm. So you have a bunch of limiters, compressors, brick wall limiter or ozone, whatever these guys are using on their stereo bus. And it's on there from the very beginning and you start mixing into it. Yeah. yeah. And that's a huge, huge problem because by the time you get to the end, you're, you know, you're just crushing the hell out of the track, you know? Mm. So what I tell guys is mix your track with nothing on your stereo bus, absolutely nothing and get it to sound dynamic. Um, get, you know, make sure that that contrast exists, you know, between the light and the dark and the mm -hmm. big and the small mm -hmm. and that the track dynamically grows when it should, you know, uh, go back and listen to classic tracks from the seventies, man. And that's what it's all about. It's all about that, that, you know, that ebb and flow, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. big and, 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 you know, guys are going to say, oh, it's so hard, man. It's, well, yeah, it is. It's mixing. It's hard. you got to get in there, man. And you've got to like, you know, you've got to ride those faders, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and bring things up and down and, and whatnot. And then once you get a great sounding mix, if you want to hear what it's going to sound like after it's mastered or if you're mastering it yourself, that's when you start to put those things on your stereo bus. Mm -hmm. Um but I, I still get so much of that from guys today and I can like pull the file into pro tools. And even before I listen to it, I can see the waveforms and go, you know, <laughs> going to have to make a call or send out an email or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, the, the end of the loudness wars, I think can, will only happen when, when people, uh, uh, you know, in, engage their their taste and their their musicality and their good they start to embrace things like that you know mm. the the dynamics and the track just like you know building you know and growing and then breaking down again mm. i mean we have to get back to that and make that the really the most important thing and make the loudness just something mm -hmm. that's secondary yeah i mean people respond to incentives and it's probably it's probably a matter of I best make this louder. I'll get the sack. And then once people are now, but if you get people to a point where it's like, I can't, I, I can't do this with pride. That's probably the, the state we need to be in before. Um, right. None, none of, none of that, that shit loudness filters to the top. That's, I guess it's, it's a more of a mentality thing, but I think you're right. You've got to mix yourself a landscape and otherwise you're mixing yourself a box. Yeah. And as you say, it's it always, small always got to be about the song. Um, you know, all your attention needs to be put into that and, yeah. you know, and then, and then like my, my process, you know, then it's like, okay, I'm going to start to make this louder, but I just don't ever want to lose the musicality that, um, I've created, yeah, you know, uh, if anything, I want to use this loudness to maybe accentuate that. Um, so in, in my case, I'm always, uh, and it's a little unusual because especially in the record world, I'm starting to see more and more mixers master their own mixes, mm. which I think is a great thing. And, but for old school guys, this is something that shouldn't happen. There's a lot of guys out there that, that still wholeheartedly believe that you have one guy mix it and you have one guy master it. And that's the way it's supposed to be. 
obviously I don't agree because mm-hmm. I've been mastering my own mixes for a long, long time now. Um, but, you know, I'm seeing guys like Andy Sneap masters his own mixes, the the guy who did the new Exhorter. Yeah. And from my own personal experiences, I feel like who who else would know better how the end result should sound than the guy yeah. that's mixing it, you know? Um, so it's something that I don't have to really concern myself with, uh, but other guys do. The expectation mm-hmm. of the band or the client. So if you're the mixer, you don't want to hand them this dynamic sounding mix, and now they're comparing their mix to whatever their new favorite CD is. Yeah. So invariably what they do is they throw some faux mastering stuff on it to try and make it louder uh, so that it's more of an equal comparison. But, you know, unless you're, you know, unless you're using some really great gear, mastering can be pretty challenging. I mean, there's a lot of great plugins and stuff out there, but for me, it's still, it's all about this stuff. You know, Uh, my mastering chain is in, virtually entirely made up of analog gear Mm. and i i really can't live without it i mean it gives me uh what i want you know um so that's a far cry from you know a mixer like all he's got is whatever the waves l1 so he's going to slap that on there and he's going to just crank the threshold and make it louder um you know so yeah, it's it's tricky. In my in my case, though, I'm delivering mastered mixes to my clients. So, you know, we've sort of eliminated that question mark of what the expectations mm. uh, should be. You kind of segued into onto my last three questions, if you've got the time. And it, it, almost perfect segue. So, if I was to start mastering today, what three plugins should I be looking out for? Well, let's see. Um, I have become a huge fan of the Plugin Alliance stuff. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that company. No, no, no. No. Uh, I believe they're a German company, Plugin Alliance. Um, and uh, I use a number of their stuff. They've got mm. uh, this townhouse bus compressor, which is just fantastic on, on your stereo bus. They also have, uh, the hell is that thing called? Let's see. <clears throat> Uh, it is the uh, the Brainworks uh, called. It's the Master Desk. Brainworks Master Desk right. is another one of theirs. Uh, uh, Stephen Slate makes a good one called the FGX, okay. uh, which is a really great brick wall limiter. What I find in mastering, whether you're doing it in the box or you're using outboard analog gear, it's mm-hmm. it's about finding. Um, uh, a, a good chain of multiple things and not asking any one thing to do a lot, yeah. but just asking each of these things to do just a little. And that's how I'm able to uh, add a lot of gain to my tracks without having to over compress or over limit it. Because I know going through all of this analog gear, I can make up, there's such high headroom with this gear and and a, Plugins, some plugins will function similarly mm-hmm. um, where I can make up a DB with like each piece of gear without mm-hmm. asking it to really to do too much. So by the time I get to my final limiter, I've maybe made up six or eight DB of gain 
So I'm really not limiting the track that much at all. You know, yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. using something like uh, like the Waves L316, maybe just to um, for peak limiting and maybe just mm-hmm. to make up a little bit of gain. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's another good one as well. But uh, <clears throat> EQ wise, the Plugin Alliance, there, there's uh, an AMEC. Uh, EQ 200, which is a mastering grade uh, parametric EQ. Mm-hmm. Um, I would use something like that. I would also consider using something like some tape emulation. Um, in my case, I use the uh, Universal Audio. They have an Ampex ATR 102 plugin, okay. which is a tape machine that I'm very, very familiar with. I mean, that was, uh, I had a half inch uh, machine over at Bayview. So, so, you know, all, all three records that we talked about were all mixed to a half inch Ampex tape machine. Mm. And the plugin is spectacular. It, it functions exactly the way the real machine does. So that'll be the first thing I'll use in my chain and I'll send the mix to that and, mm. You know, it'll add some body, some warmth, some detail to it. And then from there, I'd probably use something like that AMEC 200 EQ. Mm-hmm. Then I would start looking at um, the, uh, the uh, like that townhouse bus compressor or maybe even the SSL bus compressor. And I would start using each of those things to, you know, little by little start to add a little bit more gain until I finally get to whatever's going to be the last thing in my chain, whether it be like the slate, I said, the FGX or the, mm-hmm. the waves, the L316, um, something like that. And, and that, and that would be it. And that would be a chain that would probably work pretty well. There's also a, um, uh, uh, brain it's Brainworks or plugin Alliance. You can get it with plugin Alliance. The, um, the subscription bundle, which by the way, um, $15 a month. I mean, come <laughs> on for, for 85 plugins. Yeah. And these guys continue to create new plugins. Like virtually every month, there's a new plugin that they mm-hmm. add to the bundle. So this is for life, you know, and, and they'll, since I've had it, which is the last maybe 10 months, they've added four new plugins. And it's not just crap that like oh here's another free plugin it's like good usable stuff you know um so anybody who's like serious about this um the mixing mastering bundle uh with plugin alliance is the deal of the century i mean it's 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 really incredible um some great mastering grade plugins but also just uh some some plugins that you know you'll use constantly uh with within a mix um but uh, they they make one called it's the uh, digital V3, which mm-hmm. is a phenomenal mastering grade EQ and MS processing plugin. Um, and now a lot of plugins have this where you can actually expand the width of the mix and right. used very judiciously. I will say that again, used very judiciously. Uh, can ha- have an amazing impact on your mix. Being able to, this used to be something that was very difficult to do, to have to create um, a, 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 an MS processing situation prior to these plugins. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think how I even did it back in the day, man. It was, it was really difficult. You know, you'd have to sort of uh, encode it and then decode it. And this was just, let's say you wanted to... Um, 
you wanted to surgically do some EQ work, but only to information that's in the center of the track. Mm -hmm. Okay. And not really affect what's going on on the sides. Mm -hmm. That was a real bitch to do. Now it could not be any easier. (laughs) This, this BrainWorks plugin on one side, it's uh, you've got a four band parametric EQ that focuses only on stuff in the center. And -hmm. on the other side, same thing, four band parametric EQ, but only information on the sides. Mm -hmm. And it's been a real game changer for me, man. It's allowed me to do some unbelievable surgical repair work to some mixes that, I mean, I was shocked at what I was able to do. Um, So, it's great on that. On one hand, it's great for that. But in, as far as enhancing your mix is phenomenal. I mean, say you take um, like the sides and just add, you know, like just a DB at 10K, like a 10K shelf. What it does to your mix, you know, you're like, wow, it just just opens things up and just adds another level of detail and depth and, and space, you know, space. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those are all awesome mastering tools. And, the, and the, all of those things I just mentioned are actually things that I, I also use in my mix. So yeah. those things will be on my stereo bus, except for the brick wall limiting. Those things will be on my stereo bus uh, before I feed the track to my analog world. This is the face of someone who's bitten off more than you could chew with that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, all I can say is – Spend the 15 bucks and you, uh, you will not be disappointed and then just get in there, man, and start using them. That's the best way to, uh, 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 to really learn how to use these plugins and really see what's under the hood. And one thing I will say also about plugin Alliance that I find really helpful is the presets for most of their plugins are fantastic Mm -hmm. and really a great place to start, you know, Um, because some of them, the interfaces can look a little daunting, you know? I mean, it's like, wow, it's like, where do I even begin, you know? But you can go to the presets and click on one of those presets and you can kind of see on the interface what happens and then hear hear what it's doing. Mm. Um, But I would recommend to anybody to spend the money on on this plugin alliance. I'm a huge fan and and, um, this is – uh, an endorsement from me only because I think it's awesome. I I'm just like every other Joe out there and I got to shell out my 15 <laughs> bucks a month for it, but I happily, happily will do that. Yeah. Yeah. I might even cut that question and post it as like its own thing to like all the subreddits and stuff. Cause that's, that's a gold mine. Of information. Well, they've got a great uh, Facebook user group too, which um, I don't go on Facebook anymore, but that's a whole nother whole nother story but yeah. uh but you know when i was um it, it's a their, their user group is really really great and the guy that owns the company his name's dirk he's always on there man and and their customer support is great and um and i used to see a lot of great things about the user group where somebody would chime in and say hey i just got this plug in and I'm not even sure where to start. And then, you know, boom, there'll be like 20 posts from guys, you know, who have some real genuine, helpful uh, thoughts on the subject. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's all. It's, I'm just, I've just pulled up my list of plugins and I was like, oh yeah, I'm just trying to get the guitar to sound good. So it's all Dragonfly reverb Mm -hmm. and Lancaster audio stuff. But that's awesome, man. Um, which, Which one should I do next? I'll do the silly one next. No context at all. Um, have you ever seen a ghost? 
Have I ever seen a ghost? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to have to say, I don't think so. If I did, I wasn't really aware of it, you know? Cool. Of uh, all the people I've spoken to, um, Kyle Thomas is the only one (laughs) who's seen a ghost. He did see, it's Kyle seen a ghost. So that doesn't surprise me. I think that probably seen a ghost. I don't know. Vinny LaBella, if Vinny LaBella had seen a ghost, he probably would have kicked its ass. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was, I was actually, I, I, I tell a lie. Metal Mike said every time he worked with Merciful Fate, weird shit would happen, like all kinds of like black magic weird shit. Um, yeah. But that's it for my questions, man. You've been absolutely friggin' incredible. Is there anything you'd like to plug? You know, no, not really. But I'm, I, I love that you're doing this. I think you've taken on a, a really interesting subject because, um, you know, Roadrunner is kind of an enigma, you know. And I know, I think Monty left. I believe they were bought by BMG or Universal it's, Music. It was Warner. Um, okay. so many interesting stories about, like, how it all it, – it's a period of time referred to as the Red Wedding, Um presumably the Game of Thrones analogy and Roadrunner being read. Um, but all the personnel that work there usually went off to go and do different things. They're all still like a same social group. Like I know Monty now works at Nuclear Blast with Mark Palmer, who was Roadrunner UK. A lot of people went off and did their own independent stuff because the new, at the end of that independent tenure, all the staff at Roadrunner knew what they were worth. And I want to track that. How did it get to that point? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think Monty left, like, I I think once, if I understand correctly, I think once this uh, acquisition was happening, he pretty much left. He had already made arrangements to to leave. So that would have been like, what, 2012 or something? I think it was April 2012. And I think he was actually let go because it's no Uh, good having a 10 times platinum album. 10 years ago, you had to have it last week. Otherwise, one yeah. give a shit. Okay. but it's not like, it's not like he was going to struggle to find work. No, <laughs> no, no. It's, I mean, he's, yeah, I'm, I'm at the minute while I'm doing these interviews, I'm also like, I'm going through discogs on every record they've put out and gone, right. Okay. Um, who are the signing? What's, what's different about this band? Is there a decision being made here? Are they trying to expand? Are they trying to do why the big, big question is why, and this chapter, so like where you come in is very much the Monty story of where they've mm-hmm. got the first foothold. <clears throat> and then as you get through the nineties, then it becomes um, a different kind of, it becomes a different, he's still very much there, but I'm getting Mike Gitter into sort of start talking about metal core and things like that. Harry Abrams was um, dealing with a lot of different things in the mid nineties. And it's just a ca- the cast of characters in that record label is just staggering. Absolutely staggering. <laughs> And they and they had, I mean, that was sort of their niche, you know. They had kind of carved out this thing um, that they were known for, you know. And that's like that whole scene in Tampa, um, the you know the bands in Europe that they were signing, the bands in the Bay Area that they were signing. Um, and I, to my knowledge, I mean, I, you know, I guess Metal Blade was still operating around then, but I don't really necessarily think of those two companies in competition with each other. I, I guess yeah. there's some overlap going on, but it kind of seems like they really had that market, you know, they were known for it. And, and fans of that style of music kind of knew, like they didn't even have to know who the band was. If they saw the Roadrunner logo on there, mm-hmm. 
to them, this was like something that I'm going to probably like. I think the difference between Metal Blade, from what I can gather so far, and I haven't looked too much into Metal Blade, but I have got Brian Slagle's book. The difference between the two is Metal Blade's kind of built on a real sort of passion and a real loyalty from Brian because he's so in tune with everything that he knew what was going to sell. Even if, he, even if he'd make a dollar on a band, he's like, well, it's definitely worth, if we're going to break even by a dollar, then it's worth mm-hmm. me signing Satan and flying them around the world or doing whatever needs to be done. Whereas Roadrunner, I think, Case built a very antiquated business model. He did it. He ran it like he he would run a label in the seventies and sixties. But he surrounded himself with experts in a niche. I mean, at the time yeah. that Roadrunner came out, it was Satanic Panic. So there's antagonists over there, over there, over there, and it, there was a lot to draw from. And I think that's one of the reasons it it, it is the way it is. He just managed to find the experts and the people right, who gave a right. shit. And- passionate people i mean monty is incredibly passionate um about music and 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 you know the bands that i worked with i mean he really genuinely loved their music yeah um and i'm not sure you can really say that that exists completely like at a lot of other labels especially big labels you know yeah i mean a lot of times people they're all they're really thinking about is the bottom line you know is this going to sell i mean the mentality uh these days for i mean when i was growing up man you'd see uh you know bands uh bands were given an opportunity to grow and develop you know um (laughs) nowadays man if you don't have a hit like right out of the gate you're gone Mm-hmm. You know, and I just think about like all of the great bands that could have been that never were because they never got an opportunity to grow and 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 discover their sound. You know, yeah. uh, you know, I think back to like some of my favorite bands like Cheap Trick and you could even put Rush into that category, man. Like a band like Rush today would never stand mm-hmm. a chance ever, mm-hmm. you know. But, you know, here's a band that got an opportunity to to do what they wanted to do and really develop and evolve and have success. You know, I think the chili peppers were another band like that where it took them three or four records before they were really discovered and they had some mainstream success. But I'm in this process, I am empathizing with the labels a lot more because it's so far removed from our infrastructure as human beings to try and make money off these things. It has to be for the love of, making the metal happen so at the same time i'm like we you know we really wanted realm to develop and be this huge band but if i can't sell records we can't invest in it and if we can't invest in it or even if we do invest in it in a a depreciating product we're going to be out of jobs and if we're out of jobs we can't make metal happen right and i think that that is a perspective that musicians don't know about and i think people in general don't know about the sea the guy behind the desk with the cigar and the see the, the turnaround in the big labels where you don't have a job in one three months, because again, it's that bottom line, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if people understood that more, I think you could, you'd have a much better working relationship with labels and, and what they do and what service they do provide to the industry and to the scene. And then bands can help accommodate that and communicate more effectively. That's what I've learned so far anyway. <laughs> Well, I mean, that relationship between the artist and the record company has always been, uh, you know, a difficult one, Mm -hmm. you know, and at times fractured. And, um, you know, I mean, the old story used to be like, you know, this would be all, of course, be pre-streaming and pre-internet and whatnot. But, you know, that um, a typical major record label uh, for every 30 acts, 
29 would lose money, but that one, that one was so big, it would pay for everything else, you know? Um, and nowadays, I mean, the, the typical record label would be what they call a 360 deal where the label gets a piece of everything and that everything predominantly would be touring. And, um, with no touring going on, you know, uh, that's, that's a huge stream of revenue. That was like something that, that, that touring revenue would give a major label in more incentive to sign a band and take a chance on a band because they knew that if the band can have any success out on the road, that at least they can sort of, you know, mitigate some of the expenses that way. Mm. Um, but with no touring going on right now and who buys records, you know, I still scratch my head and, and I'm thinking, well, how's anybody making any money? You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I pay 15 bucks a month for Spotify and I'm happy to do it, but mm. where does that money go? Who mm. gets it? Mm. I, I don't know. It's, it's like some magic formula. It's interesting that you mentioned the 360 deal, especially in the pandemic, because I'm trying to figure out how does it relate to streaming performances like on Twitch? Because you have a lot of Twitch musicians who play their own music, but technically they don't own their own music. So if I donate $5 to Mike Hafey playing a Trivium song, in theory, he should get that $5, but then Rhoda and Mike come in and go, actually, that belongs to Warner Brothers and and trying to figure figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. Well, I guess Bandcamp is another one, too, where you can, um, you know, really sort of support support the artist. I mean, um, I I don't know. I don't uh, I I have a Spotify account. I use it uh, quite quite a bit, Um, you know, and and I just I, I guess. Ban- you know, I haven't really done anything. I, I, it's like I want to pay the artist. I'm one mm-hmm. of those guys where man, I want to make sure that the artist gets the money. I just don't know really how to do more than subscribe to Spotify. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, and I think a lot of people probably feel feel the same way. And I mean, there are people who go to Bandcamp and do that, but I, I just don't. I don't ingest that much music like that. I mean, dude. For me, like I'll sit downstairs and I'll listen to my records, you know, so um, I don't know. I guess the artist already got paid, you know, because <laughs> I bought the record. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's but it's tricky, man. It's, you know, it, um, it makes me kind of glad that I'm doing what I'm doing now. You know, I don't really have those headaches. I should have asked this question before. Did, were you on the royalty system for those three albums or were you paid by the hour? No, I. No, I, I did. I, I, I got a flat fee to do all three records. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, royalty was offered to me on, um, the exhorter record. Mm-hmm. And I decided not to take it. It was either, Hey, you can have X amount of dollars, uh, and no royalty, or mm-hmm. you can, you know, have a little less of a, of a production fee and we'll give you a point. Mm-hmm. And I, I chose, I mean, my thinking was like, I don't, is this really going to, this isn't going to sell a million records, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I went that route and I I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. It's just what Mm. it was. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I get on some of the trailer stuff. I do. I have relationships with some of my clients, so um, they will, in lieu of any royalty, they will give me a percentage of the, composers share so i'm a i'm a i'm a bmi writer i mean i'm i'm affiliated with bmi so i get Mm -hmm. small royalty checks for stuff every once in a while Um, but for the most part i'm a work for hire guy 
Cool. Cool. Well, that about wraps it up, man. I think my, my kid's going to go to bed. Dude, this was a lot of fun, man. I, yeah, I man, appreciate that was awesome. you reaching out. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I haven't talked about this stuff in, in forever, if ever. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah. I mean, like I say, you're part of the cast and characters of that, of that, of that journey that that label took, you know, I mean, you could, yeah. you, you were almost part of the thrash factory. <laughs> almost man almost, yeah. almost and i came, i came out the other side intact so uh yeah that was a that was good um yeah. but hey if you ever uh talk to any of the the guys that uh that i had worked with please tell them i said hello and yeah. uh I will do. i'd love to hear from them i mean i'm easy to find uh on the internet so uh yeah i'd yeah. L- love to hear what I'll, these guys I'll are up know. to i'll let them know awesome. um just for your information on, on, on this bit. So what I'll, actually I'll probably, I'm, I'm, first thing I do is I commit a carnal sin is I take the um, MP3 from this or the WAV and I throw it into fixmylevels.com in case that our inputs are out of match. Instead uh-huh. of spending hours on Audacity mixing it, I just throw it onto there and it right. processes it. Um, but I'll edit this straight away and I'll send it straight out and I'll direct all the traffic to your website and tag you on, what, are you on Twitter or anything? I know you're not on Facebook. No, Facebook, uh, no, really my, my website is really the only, the only thing. Cool. And your Spotify awesome. so you can get pennies for the, uh, for the thousands of streams that you're going to get. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but uh, I, I will have to sit down and, uh, and listen to the law and, uh, just really a blast from the past or actually the heathen record too. I, I you know, I actually have the heathen on vinyl, so mm. that would probably be the thing to do is to pull that out and, uh, and have a, have a listen. But, uh, man, it was really nice to just kind of reminisce about this stuff that I haven't thought about, haven't thought about this stuff in a long, long time. And, mm. uh, and like I said, I mean, they were, they, those were good times. I had a really good time with these guys and a uh, lot of great memories and, um, and, and just a, a lot of, you know, a lot of fun. Yeah, man. And the sound consistent, not to keep bringing up the mixes and stuff, but that, you know, it was a job well done. I know you didn't expect to hear oh, that thanks. 30 years from now, uh, from then, but yeah. Well, well, dude, thanks, I, man. I appreciate that. No, I appreciate your time. It was an, like nearly an hour fifty, and I and I said an hour. So you've I've completely drained all knowledge from you, I think, and probably all your energy no, and willpower. <laughs> no, no, no. I've I've got a I've got a new track sitting right there. So I'm gonna probably finish my coffee, maybe smoke a little joint, and dive into uh, dive into my next track here. So. Sweet, man. All right, well, thanks very much awesome. for your time. I'll let you know when it's open. Yeah, I'll Jim. get everyone. Um, I'll, I'll keep in touch about how it's yeah, all please, going. Please do, man. Keep in touch. And, uh, you know, I'd love to, you know, see see how this thing progresses and and, uh, and check it out. But it was really great speaking with you, man. Yeah, you too, Rob. All the best, mate. All right. Have yeah, take one. care. All right, bye-bye.